Welcome to Vows to Keep Radio with David and Tracy Sellers. The mission of Vows to Keep is to help couples develop a biblically healthy marriage through the application of God's Word and a deeper relationship with Him. They desire to help you and your spouse grow closer to each other and closer to the heart of God's design for your marriage. Now, here's David and Tracy with today's broadcast. We are David and Tracy Sellers, and like you, we have made vows to keep. Proverbs 13.10 says, Where there is strife, there is pride. But wisdom is found in those who take advice. If you're a person who is not teachable, you will find pride and strife in your relationships. Pride is the root of being unteachable. So glad you're along with us today on Vows to Keep Radio. We are in a series called Trim It, Live It, and Prove It. Today, continuing, David, talking about living it. Are we faking this thing called Christianity or are we living what God's word is teaching us? And we so often find the actual answer to that by looking at our marriages. It reminds me of Matthew, one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Now, he was a man that actually looked very unteachable from the outside. But with one invitation from Jesus Christ, we see it all changes. Look at Luke chapter 5, verse 27 reads this. Jesus saw a man, a tax collector named Levi, who later became Matthew, sitting at his tax collector booth. He said this, follow me and be my disciple. So Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Verse 29 continues, later Levi held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. Now many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law came bitterly complaining to Jesus' disciples, why do you eat and drink with such scum. Jesus answered them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they're sinners and they need to repent. So how about you today? You're either believing the truth that you need change and you want it, or you're believing the lie that you don't need change or simply can't make a change as big as you need. Jesus is our ultimate shepherd. He leaves the 99 behind to seek after the one who is lost. Praise God for that, right? He goes after the one that will have a radically changed life when they encounter him. And Matthew was a man like that, a notorious sinner, collecting money from people and pocketing it for his own personal gain. But Jesus saw something in him that was soft and pliable. And when Jesus called, Matthew never looked back. He gave it all right down to his lucrative income and the security that his life offered. He even risked judgment from his friends by throwing this banquet for Jesus, a man who lives so differently from their sinful lifestyle. Too often we stand back from our sins and say, hey, I'm not stealing it like Matthew was. So maybe the change God wishes to bring into your life is actually a smaller change. Can your heart be open for changing the little things in your marriage? Shouldn't that be easier? You know what, friends, too often, I think it's harder. Too many small heart issues are just accepted in our lives, left in place because we don't even see them as wrong, let alone something that God might be using our spouse in to bring a change. We resist. We eventually merely exist like Matthew did just before Jesus did something drastic that changed it all. I think you're right, David. It's in those quote unquote small heart issues, those ones that we accept that God is asking us to change. Just like God looked at Matthew that day, he's looking at our lives, asking us to leave our ways, what seems so right to us in the moment and follow him and him alone. 
He wants to encounter us, I believe, right where we're at today because he knows everything. He knows we need to be taught. Our great shepherd knows we're lost without him. And he knows if we say yes to him, that we'll do what Matthew did. We'll invite others to come and meet our Jesus as well. Imagine this, husbands, being so teachable that you're entrusted to teach others. Now, I met with a man recently who we'll call Cam, whose life was locked living in the past when he had failed. You see, several years ago, he had lost the battle with pornography, and the results were very costly. If I flash back to when I first met this couple, Cam and Jenny, they were just coming to terms with this sin and the effect that it was having on their marriage. He was broken, and his wife was clearly betrayed. This isn't just this couple's story. In fact, statistics tell us this is probably 50% of the couples that are out there, if not more. Change was possible, though, because... Although he failed, he wanted Jesus to rule his life and his desires going forward. He repented, and as a couple, we worked with them to define some very logical boundaries to address the risk, and it seemed like they would probably move on. But now, two years later, he came back, still having victory over that pornography, still teachable, but like I said, still pinned down by his past. Let me say this again. Imagine husbands being so teachable that you're entrusted to teach others. The sad thing was this husband just couldn't see around the bend yet. Matthew still struggled with sin, but he let his heart remain teachable for the rest of his days. And he became the writer of the book of Matthew, a source of teaching for the very Pharisees who mocked him all the way to us now 2000 years later. I think when we're at these failure points, we don't always realize that God knows he can use you to be a mouthpiece for him too. And he's chosen to use your life specifically to speak his message of truth to the closest person in your life, your spouse, your family. If we've been changed, if we've repented, if we've learned, we can see our new role to potentially help others in their brokenness. In this man's case, his sin hurt his wife, Jenny, so bad that even two years later, she wouldn't stop reminding him of that cost by having a near sexless marriage. Like it often is in marriage, we fail to see our role in our spouse's life because all we can see is the pain that they've caused us. With each sexual urge that Cam had, he was reminded of his failures. Remember Luke chapter 5 verse 30, it says, But the Pharisees and their teachers of religious law complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with such scum? Of course, they're talking about Matthew right in front of him. And this is pretty much the same message this wife is sending to her husband as well. Sometimes people become teachable, but because of their failure and the pain it's caused their spouse, it reveals that the one who's offended is in fact not teachable. Their heart has been hardened by the pain. It's often not like we think it is. Teachability is not always the one who's most righteous. To a wise person, teachability is a reaction to our sins. Now, I have to say, where this couple was, this is exactly where Satan wanted to leave them, neutralized. When we don't forgive and restore in our marriage, we enable Satan to have a much greater inroad than the initial failure. Cam has never said it to me out loud, but Satan has probably encouraged him, why should you stick with a woman who neglects you even after you've changed? But then I read verse 31. Jesus answers the Pharisees, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know that they are sinners and need to repent. 
before we harden our heart to our spouse or even after knowing that their sin is having an effect on us. Can we ourselves hunger to live out what Jesus asks us to do? When two sinners say, I do, the challenge is if we can see our spouse as sick and broken and lovable, even if they don't, not to condemn them for how they might be affecting us, but how to ask them to join us in a life lived beyond our own self-righteousness, a life lived in God's word. Cam was certainly in a jam. He came to me saying, what do I do with Jenny? The answer to his question is actually found in God's word when it says to us that when your spouse is in sin, we should try to restore them and also live a life that tells the truth about who God is in your life and theirs. Cam, having been restored in his own sin, is now better equipped to help his wife with her sin. Because at our root, we are just people in need of change, helping people in need of change. Just as Cam was a man struggling to deal with his sexless marriage, he could have depended on his porn-free track record to demand something from his wife. Or he could see her withdrawal and continued condemnation as Jesus did the Pharisees. You see, Jesus knew the Pharisees needed him as their Lord and Savior. Of course, they couldn't see that. They're withdrawing from the very person that they needed the most. The wife in this situation is much like the Pharisees. She's condemning. She's saying, why do you and I hang out with someone like Matthew? Jesus' response is first rate. He's saying it's not the well people. We have to be careful in our marriages to not be lost on how our spouse's words or actions might condemn us, but rather focus on the bigger picture of how your life lives serving God might compel them to also deal with their sin and follow God. You see, this man had repented of his sin. He had gotten right with God. He was taking the same kind of path that Matthew was. But his wife managed to look at him like the Pharisees did. Lip service to the Lord, faking it, doesn't go anywhere. So let's look at someone else in the Bible who learned this the hard way. His name is King Nebuchadnezzar. And you can find most of his story in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Now he began in pride. But God taught him to have a teachable heart, and it was a really interesting journey. Nebi was an all-powerful ruler of Babylon, and his pride ruled him. Daniel comes into his service, and God uses Daniel to repeatedly reveal to the king that God was the only God. And Nebi gives lip service, saying in Daniel chapter 2, verse 47, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. He looks like he's ready to live it, but then immediately he makes this false God. You remember the giant golden statue demanding all the people bow down to it. It was a display of his pride, his power, saying that he would kill anyone who didn't listen to his command. Now comes into play Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yeah, they didn't listen because they knew there was only one God worthy of bowing down to. Not even a king's command could sway them, so old little Nebi here shows his hard heart by throwing them into this fiery furnace and they don't burn up. And here's what he says in reaction to that. Daniel chapter three, verse 28. Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. Praise be to this God. He's either starting to get real here in his heart, or he's just paying lip service like we do. You know how it goes. Something amazing happens in your life. Things are going good for the first time in a long time. Or it seems like we're finally getting our way and we briefly talk the talk. Then it's back to our old walk just a couple days later. It's in those moments of hard-heartedness that God sometimes 
steps in and tries to get our attention, tries to help us see we haven't really committed. God was after Nebuchadnezzar's heart. Now he had to get very extreme with him to get his attention. In Daniel chapter four, we can see what happens. It says this, a voice declared from heaven to the king. In verse 31, you are no longer ruler of this kingdom. You'll be driven from human society. You'll live in the fields with the wild animals and you're going to eat grass like a cow. Seven years will pass while you live this way until you learn that the most high rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. So how has God been working in your marriage, in your life lately to get your attention, to help you to understand that he loves you and he wants you to live what you say you believe. It's loving discipline that doesn't feel too good most of the time. Sometimes it has to come to extreme measures to get us to the point where we're not just willing to acknowledge God as our savior, not just to do a head nod to God, staying on cordial terms, but a true heart turnaround an about face of our life and actions. So what's your pride level? It's absolutely attached to how teachable you are. So how teachable are you? Because that's absolutely attached to your heart's hardness or softness. How's your heart doing today? That's absolutely attached to the words and actions that people see in your life. How's your behavior today? Because that's absolutely connected to the health of your marriage relationship. How's your marriage relationship? You see, that's absolutely directly connected to your pride. I love that chain analogy, David. One really does affect the next. So Jesus had 11 other disciples besides Matthew. So let's take just a moment to get to know one of them. His name is Thomas. Now, if you don't know, Thomas was known for his doubt and his unbelief. He was with Jesus on a daily basis. Yet for Thomas, the jury was really still out. Yes, he believed, but he wanted proof. So after Jesus rose from the grave, Thomas wanted to see with his own eyes where the nails had been. His heart wasn't hard, but he had his own criteria before he was going to sell out completely. So we've got to ask, was Thomas teachable? Was his heart in a position to be as pliable as possible? I'll let that marinate for a moment as you think about your own life. Is the jury still out for you? Do you think you know best until proven differently? Do you withhold your heart from God? or your spouse until they prove they can be trusted? Do you hold your husband's opinion at arm's length until his attitude improves or you see that he's really authentic? Let's go back to when you first started dating your spouse-to-be. What was the condition of your heart in those early years of courting and marriage? Most of us begin our relationship with a desire to please the other person. We bend over backward to fulfill their every need and desire. I'm trying my darndest to win them over because I see something I want. I want them. I set aside my preferences until I win the prize, right? Finally walking down the aisle and marrying this wonderful man. But not too far down that marriage road, I see my actions and my heart are starting to change. I've already got what I want and now there's no need to have a soft heart towards him trying to meet his needs. Jesus points out to us our faked commitment just like he did King Nebuchadnezzar. You know, we begin this relationship with what looked good on the outside, but I was really in pursuit of selfish gain. What could I get from my God? I saw my spouse as someone who could meet my needs. And now that those needs are met, (laughs) have I drastically changed my tune? 
My heart begins to harden towards my spouse and I become demanding, telling them that my rules are now what they should follow. I think another of Jesus' disciples falls into this category. His name is Judas Iscariot. You might know that name. He betrayed Jesus to those who would eventually crucify him. But the amazing part is Judas did this after spending three years walking with Jesus. He sat under his teaching. He ministered in the name of Jesus. Yet Judas's heart at some point was hard. His sin got in his way. He lost his teachability. Many a good beginning makes a bad ending, to quote Laura Ingalls Wilder. This is what happens in our marriages. In Jesus' case, this resulted in the death of Jesus Christ. But many a marriage finds itself in the very same spot. The death of a marriage started by betrayal. Sometimes, though, a bad beginning can make a good ending. And it all depends on the heart. Some couples don't start their relationship like the couples we just described. Some can start out actually very selfish, making all the typical sin issues that we all deal with. Yet when they hear the call of God, when they meet him on the road of life, they respond in a way that says, Lord, I am sensitive to your direction. I'm here. I'm teachable. I'm willing to be molded. I'm willing to live this thing. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Is this how your spouse would describe your marriage today? more resembling Matthew's relationship with Christ or more resembling Judas's serving each other and responding well to the Lord's teaching or slowly over time, getting a hard heart. You're comfortable and have no interest in learning the master's ways. Hearts change over time. So how do you know which one you are in your marriage? First of all, if you find that you're easily disappointed when your spouse doesn't respond, when you give, you can assess that you might be giving to get. These people also feel they have a right to their opinions or their desires. They feel their own perspective is just as valid as everyone else. And it's more about conveying my idea first than it is about hearing and respecting someone else's ideas to refine your own. Your heart maybe isn't completely hard yet, but you're not far off. Here's another place you might be today. If your spouse doesn't even talk to you anymore about major decisions or things of the heart, you may fall into the hardest of hearts category. Your spouse may talk at you, but the two of you don't have communication anymore about how a decision should be made. And instead you push for what you want. You're not having a dialogue. You're just telling her this is the way it is. Communication skills and tips and tricks don't fix this problem. These kinds of marriages rarely have eruptions, but you also can't remember the last time the tone in your home didn't have a strong undercurrent of disregard or disrespect. Couples can go years and years in this mode, absolutely faking it. Or some are in the third category. If our pursuit for each other is a godly pursuit, not for our own selfish gain, but truly loving and serving the other person for their benefit, your marriage might even be in a rocky state today, but guess what? It's headed for recovery. If you seek mentorship before you make a decision, that's a pretty good sign that you're putting yourself in the way of truth. If you're willing to go to your spouse and ask them to keep you accountable for biblical adherence in an area that you're struggling in, and then you don't get angry or prideful when they try to help, you're on the right path because you are keeping yourself teachable. So often, one of us is in one category and one of us is in another in our marriage. We are responsible to the Lord for ourselves. We have to recognize that we do have an influence on which category our spouse is in 
and which one they're headed for. Ultimately, ultimately, we are accountable to God for how we act and react despite our spouse's behavior. Sometimes disobedience to God's word, not living the gospel is blatant. And sometimes it's a slow progression, a hardness of my heart that comes on so slowly, I don't even recognize it. The process of it changing from soft, malleable clay to granite hard stone can start with something that can seem insignificant at first, like a little compromise in what I choose to watch. A week I allowed to get so busy I didn't have time to be in God's word. A decision to isolate instead of to engage. A harsh word I didn't seek forgiveness for. It can seem like I'm doing good, that our marriage is doing good before we see the first fruits of our newly hardened heart. In closing, two examples come to mind. The first one is in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve had the great teacher, the shepherd in their very midst, the Lord God, creator of it all, in their presence, within their reach, to learn all they needed about themselves and the world that God has created. Yet somewhere deep inside Eve, she was a little like doubting Thomas. She saw the Lord, but for her, the jury was still out on whether God would get all of her heart or not. At the first opportunity, she grasped at the chance to learn more than she knew. Her actions showed she didn't think what God had taught her was enough. She wanted to write her own rules, and her heart bought into the lies and hardened toward the Lord. She turned to sin. So did Adam's. If we would have been there, we wouldn't have seen it coming either. The second example is Satan himself. Check out Genesis 3 and Isaiah 14. From him, we can see that even when we're in God's presence, we can harden our heart to him and really just do what we want to do. We can see in both the cases of Eve and Satan, a hard heart separates us from God. And in our case, a hard heart does the same thing. And yet it goes one step further. A hard heart separates us from our spouse. When you lose your teachability, you lose your unity with your creator and with the one he gave to you in marriage. It's a sliding scale from indifference to complacency to neglect. If you're not teachable in the presence of the Lord, you will quickly find you are very indifferent to your spouse's feelings. Over time, you will see that decisions are made without regard for the other person's input. Eventually, that leads to decisions made without regard for God's input. In actuality, the order of these things is the other way around. People almost always disregard God's word first, then disregard their spouse's input. That's the natural progression. In closing, Proverbs 26.12 says, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. And that's because pride is deceptive. It tells me I don't need anything but myself and the wisdom I can provide. Sounds like the message of the world, doesn't it? Pride says I don't need you. I don't need God. Pride was at the root of what happened in both of the cases of Eve and Satan. Not long ago, a man named John and his wife came and they were fully broken. They saw their need for repentance. They saw their need to ask for forgiveness. They saw their need to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But in John's case, when it came time to face accountability for long-term change, he walked away. He knew that Jesus Christ was his Lord and Savior and was content stopping there. Don't let that be you. Don't have such a short-sighted view 
that you would miss God's desire for your heart. Join us next week as we continue in our series, Trim It, Live It, and Prove It. Vows to Keep is supported by a team which includes biblical coaches, writers, and pastoral advisors. If you have a desire to serve marriages in your community, we would love to hear from you. Vows to Keep is a not-for-profit marriage ministry designed to bring God's encouraging truth to the marriages of our area. As a not-for-profit organization, our commitment to Christ-like marriages includes providing much-needed services regardless of a couple's financial ability to offset the cost of Vows to Keep operations. If you are unable to donate your time or abilities but would like to help support Vows to Keep financially, visit VowsToKeep.com and click on the donate link. This program is sponsored by Vows to Keep of Zanesfield, Ohio.